Welcome to Understanding Black Britain. This easy listening podcast series is designed to help you understand the history of racism, what racism looks like today, the lived experience, how racism affects us, what makes us an activist, who are our allies and why did they take up the arms in the anti-racism struggle. My name is Oliver Evans and I am a community and race relations activist. In this episode, we'll begin to look at what racism sounds like and how it's manifested in today's society. Before we go any further, I must warn that this episode contains language and terminology which some may find offensive or upsetting. If, like myself, you're of African heritage or Caribbean or Asian heritage and were born or moved here between the 60s and 80s, you'd be used to a certain level of directness from your local racist. A few days after moving back to England, I have vivid memories of walking into a well-known food establishment to a shout of, Oi, no niggers allowed in here, and seeing various women suddenly take a firm grasp of their handbags. Just walking along the street, I've lost count of the times I was called nigger, coon, kaffir, boy, or a black bastard. Despite the anger, the hurt and the insult I felt every time I was subjected to these attacks. I still had a certain amount of regard for the perpetrators. Now that might seem a strange thing to say, but it's true. The overt racist who abused you just as easily as they breathed left no ambiguity of where you stood in their biased views, and so I soon came to know who to avoid. To understand what racism looks like today, we need to, as we did in the first episode, explore a little bit of history. We often hear people say that examples of problematic racism are always from history, and we don't see any examples from today. The truth is that there are plenty of examples from today to choose from, but we need to be able to appreciate and acknowledge the history and the evolution to make sense of exactly what we see and hear today. I was walking through... The, on the pathway in the park in Wandsworth, in Un- Wandsworth Road, Union Grove there. And uh, there were two policemen walking towards me. As I'm walking towards them, I didn't think to get off the path or anything like that. They just pushed me down hard, right? And I fell on my ass, sort of like back, uh, and they started laughing. And then I remember I told this education welfare officer, and this was like, obviously I'm in my 40s now, and I told him about it, and as soon as I told him about it, he just burst out laughing like it was so funny, and I wasn't even telling him so that he would laugh. Well, once I, I told him, he pushed me on the ground. That's when he started laughing, and it just made me see that they're all the bloody same, you know. While as individuals, we all carry negative biases, it's hard to fathom that today's police officer would blatantly push a teenage black girl to the floor in public and subsequently laugh at her humiliation without facing serious consequences or being called out by colleagues. Implicit biases are influenced by experiences. Although these attitudes may not be as a result of direct personal experience, cultural conditioning and upbringing can contribute to the implicit associations that people form about the members of societal groups, genders and races. 
indirect experience through television, radio, music, advertising and social media are all relevant when we look at how our biases are formed. The constant television news depiction of a young black man in a hoodie perpetrating a crime or the constant advertising images of white middle-aged women who complain non-stop means that unless you have alternative experience, these media influences instill a bias that all black men are criminals and all white middle-aged women always complain and happen to be called Karen. Cephas Williams' campaign, 56 Black Men, is using the influence of social media, advertising and television to reverse the stereotype and bias of thought around how we perceive black men. The campaign looks to challenge the lazy and dangerous stereotype of the black man, as well as the negative connotations and the stigma attached to the cliche image of a black man wearing a hoodie. Advertising is immensely powerful in creating biases. In the next Black Friday event, have a look at the words that they use throughout the campaign to entice you to buy products. Then look at the words from the adverts of the trading and sale of slaves from the 17th and 18th century. See how much of a correlation you notice. While you're there, ask yourself, what's the reason it was called Black Friday? These implicit biases occur because the brain has a natural inclination to look for patterns and associations. Social cognition, our ability to store, process and apply information about people in social situations is all dependent on this ability to form associations about the world. So because the brain is constantly inundated with more information than it can conceivably process, it creates these mental shortcuts to make it faster and easier to sort through all the data and recognise situations or types of people, ergo, we get biases. So really, biases around people are the stories that we, or rather our brains make up, about people before we even know who they are. But how do we get to know who they are, or overcome our biases? Well, in order to overcome, you need to acknowledge your biases. And then you need to figuratively walk towards your discomfort and get to know the people you don't know by reading, learning and educating yourself on what you don't understand. The truth is, is that you're not going to get comfortable before you get uncomfortable. Because the problem isn't seeing colour, the problem is what we do when we see colour. If you change your illusions, you change your world. But while you're doing that, it's really important to remember that perception isn't necessarily the truth. Today, racism isn't always as overt as it once was, and that's because it's harder to spot your average racist in today's society, as comedian Luis Orgola noted in his Live at the Apollo set. The racism you guys discuss and talk about is like that nuanced, mm, is, it, is it? I grew up during apartheid South Africa. Our racism was very, very clear. <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't like subtle, there's a gray area. It's like, why can't we go to the beach? Because there's a sign that says no blacks allowed. I don't understand. <laughs> Recent British racism 
is rendered through microaggressions and institutional and systemic discriminations because of biases. And the nuance of it certainly appears to be unique to Britain. Yeah, this racism issue is, is um, it's quite something different, really, to what you what you sort of get in Africa to what you get over here. In Africa, it was a bit more sort of blatant. Then coming over here, the racism I've experienced is subtle racism, where you know you sort of question whether you're being paranoid or it's actually racism. Microaggressions is a term first created and used in 1970 by Dr. Chester Middlebrook Pierce. He used it to describe the insults and the dismissive behaviours used towards people from the black community. Although today, the term is used to describe discrimination of anyone from a marginalised group. Microaggressions are rooted in stereotypical beliefs. Some are more common than others, and it's important to note that anybody can deliver a microaggression. Of the more common ones, the most cutting and belittling are is that even a name though? Where are you really from? Oh my God, is that your real hair? Oh, I love black people. Or correcting English in a person who English is their first language. Another thing that people do is compare black people to black stereotype figures. One thing I definitely did see a lot more of is certain microaggressions and stuff like that that's that's one thing that became new and that's almost like that was the transition for me really so as much as all the the stops and searches might have ended it's when the microaggressions seem to start i'm getting referred to as oh you look like a basketball player you look like you should be a personal trainer you shouldn't be doing this job that, that, that. i feel belittled in the sense of well I know who I am, I'm my own person, so I don't really need to be told what you think I look like or what you think I should be doing. And I think it's more so the fact that it happens pretty much every run of ships. I'll get it at least once a day from someone. We're even stereotyped about where we live and what we eat. When we were growing up, if you were black, you were assumed to be urban. People just assumed that you love hip-hop and that you came from a city somewhere and you ate chicken. You know what I mean? That people would make assumptions about. In the UK, major institutions operate in ways that discriminate against ethnic minority groups. This is probably what you've heard of referred to as systemic, structural or institutional racism. One example, in the 2017 Lamy report, MP David Lamy noted that individuals still face bias, including overt discrimination, in parts of the justice system, with disproportionate sentencing outcomes and treatment in prisons, particularly for black males. We've already heard in the first episode how people from the black community are still 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. But justice isn't the only area where we see the systemic marginalisation of races. Owner of the loudest voice in the British Army, Regimental Sergeant Major Britain, Many organisations, including the Army and the NHS, have found to operate on a premise of systemic and institutional racism. A Fijian soldier serving with the 2nd Battalion Duke of Lancaster's Regiment from 2005 to 2012 
was awarded £490,000 last year by the Ministry of Defence for racial discrimination. He and fellow ethnic minority soldiers were ordered to dress as Taliban insurgents for an army training video so that white soldiers could understand what their enemy looked like. The judiciary in this case noted that the army is no longer the honourable institution it once was. In 2019, we saw the publication of the Wigston Report, a report on the attitude and the behaviours of those in the military, including the very senior ranks. The report highlighted the shortcomings of the current military system for raising complaints about inappropriate behaviour and racism. From the evidence, it's clear that bullying, harassment and discrimination is underreported, potentially to a significant degree. The report found that there was a disproportionate overrepresentation of women and ethnic minorities for the third year running. In the recorded complaints of abuse and harassment, over 25% of all complaints received by the military concerned racial discrimination. Every year, the NHS publishes data looking at specific areas involving race. In the recent race equality data, black employees were found to be almost twice as likely to be entered into a formal disciplinary proceeding and given a harsher punishment compared to a white colleague as a result. One discovery from safe space events that were held at the beginning of this year by the NHS CEOs across the country was that black employees found that by being black, they were considered guilty until proven innocent. But to prove their innocence, they had to produce 10 times the evidence comparative to a white colleague disciplined for the same infraction. Last year, almost 30%, that's around 72,000 people of ethnic minority heritage across the whole NHS complained of internal racial harassment or abuse. And the data also showed that it was five times more likely that they would have their grievances ignored or dismissed through inappropriate victim blaming and gaslighting cultures. Cultures found mainly in HR departments as well as lower executive and middle management tiers. That's right, they're saying it's their fault that they were racially abused by the co-workers. White applicants, on average, are one and a half times more likely to gain employment to the NHS than black applicants. Many applicants who've got significantly greater experience and a higher level of qualification are not appointed in favour of white applicants. Um, in this one job, a permanent position came up. <clears throat> I went for the post and so did somebody who was uh, less experienced than I was and didn't have the same or didn't have the qualification nor the experience. She wanted the post and so did I. I did everything I could to get that post. I know, as did others, that I was the right candidate for the post, but they gave the post to the less experienced person who was white. I did end up, end up leaving um, and that was um, my first experience, you know, of white privilege. And, you know, I, I worked 10 times as hard, had to fight 
10 times more um, and, and, I, and I wasn't successful in, in the position. So um, that was extremely devastating, heartbreaking for me. That just showed me that it wasn't me, it was them. So while we can hear old school, direct offensive racism is less likely to occur between individuals, we can demonstrate that the instances of racial prejudice are more likely to be experienced in the workplace. But work, thankfully, is now underway to try and change and eradicate these cultures and the practice methods that go with them. This year has seen an increased pressure on the chief constables, NHS CEOs, military and business leaders to proactively address the issues of individual, systemic and institutional racism. While the efforts so far are commendable, so much more needs to be done and the issue of race equity needs to continue past talk and into action. Of the seven pillars of the constructs of racism that we visited in episode one, we can see that dominance, management and containment are particularly visible in the microaggressions and the institutional actions of people and companies that confine black people to stereotypes and specific areas of business. Intellectuality is dismissed at employment opportunities and progression, and the bias of interview panels care more of a black applicant's ability to mesh with the existing team over the role. This is most certainly an area where we need to remove the concrete ceiling that inhibits not just black people, but every ethnic minority. Replace it with a very fragile, easily breakable, glass ceiling. In the area of humanity, businesses and employers failing to accept racism exists in their organisations, coupled with dismissing or minimising the impact of concerns raised in grievances, dehumanises black staff and their colleagues. It also drives the perpetuation of perverse, inequitable cultures that allows the issues of discrimination and abuse to be ignored to the detriment of a person's mental well-being. In all of these examples that you've heard today, black people's reality is subjugated and erased through gaslit or microaggressive attitudinal approaches, resulting in the black community questioning their very identity and their worth. Whether in public or private sector, a black person must work three times harder and six times longer to achieve the same standing and recognition as someone who's white. Throughout it all, the issue of white privilege has always been, and will continue to be, the cementing block to white prejudices and biases towards ethnic races that will see the harmful realities of racism continue to be existence far, far, far into the future. We need to actively challenge behaviours and biases in ourselves, in our colleagues, as well as in our society. And if someone feels a need to challenge behaviours with you, please, please, please never ever use the phrase, I'm so sorry and I'm offended that you're offended. The reason that racism manifests in Britain, whether we look at 30 years ago or today, is because of the fixation of what is required to be considered British. The notion of Britishness for some is a limited and uniform one, with a constant requirement of those who are not white to demonstrate their commitment and loyalty to it. 
but as the dynamic of the world shifts, the idea and the portrayal of Britishness is shifting with it. And it certainly isn't the distorted concept of the 17th and 18th century society. The black community continues, however, to be portrayed in systemic and institutional practices as being the square peg desperately trying to fit in a round hole. But before today, how many of you have ever stopped to think that maybe the hole is in fact the wrong shape? Together, black, white, Asian, and every other ethnicity, let's dig a new hole. Let's stop placing all the responsibility and blame on the peg so that we can all fit into a world that allows us to be equally British through our values and not our skin tone. Most importantly, let's move away from racial discussions that give the appearance of progress and dynamic shifts, discussions that are terminally repetitive and frustrating, and let's move towards actions. The biggest gathering London has seen in weeks and one of the most passionate. This year, we've seen protests by the black community following the events of the 25th of May, as well as the frustration of the inaction of government and their part in not tackling the issues of racism. The Black Lives Matter movement saw thousands of people mobilised to say enough is enough and remind the world that black lives really do matter. Many of these protests were met with counter-protests by the far-right groups, including the recently formed Patriotic Alternative Group, considered by many to be the most prolific and overtly racist of all the right-wing groups. As a result of the statues of Churchill, himself a proven racist, being vandalised and the effigy of Edward Colson being torn down from its plinth on the streets of Bristol, on the 13th of June, thousands of far-right supremacists took to the streets claiming to be protecting statues across London. It wasn't long before skirmishes between them and BLM started to take place all over London. During the course of the day, the far-right became more and more overt in the racism they demonstrated. Chants of Blacks Go Home and repeated impersonation of monkey calls interluded with God Save the Queen and England filled the streets. While there was violence from both sides, after the main Black Lives Matter protests had dispersed, extremely vicious clashes took place between the supremacists and the police. The level of violence was condemned by all, except for the far right, who claimed that officers deserved what they got. After some of the officers were sympathetic in taking the knee in support of Black Lives Matter a week before. Social media filled with videos of groups of white supremacists offering the Nazi salute and shouting white power meters from the cenotaph. Many were veterans sporting military insignias, but all of them failed to see the hypocrisy of their actions given where they were. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. We have the data, we know the issues. We've had the discussions. Now, let's really do something about it. We can walk it out and move So that the next time I sit and do an episode on what racism looks like today, it's just half an hour of silence because it doesn't exist. 
thank you for joining me today and listening and I hope that you've managed to learn something. Join me for episode three, The Lived Experience. <laughs>